Thank you very much for the kind welcome. We're back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. Please, if you have a Bible, you can turn there, or I'll put the text on screen. So it's now several weeks after Halloween, so we're well into the Christmas season, and some of you groan maybe, but many of us get excited about the whole idea of Christmas. Uh, Because we have a kind of dream concept, mostly formed by Christmas adverts from giant corporates about how Christmas should feel, right? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire, cozy living rooms, happy family times of laughter and fun. And most of all, we look forward to the feasting, right? To the fresh turkey, to the honey-baked ham, to the stuffing, to the mince pies, Christmas pudding, the whole works. Now, there's a lot of feasting, actually, in Luke chapter 14. And our section today starts in verse 7, where Jesus is at a feast, a dinner, perhaps a wedding or some other event. And he notices, right, that many of the guests, whenever they come in, they try to take the best seats of honor at the top table. And Jesus warns them that can be kind of embarrassing because if your host then needs that seat for someone more important than you, you'll be asked to take a lower seat. And in such an honor-shame culture, that would be very embarrassing. So he advises these people, instead, whenever you're invited, take a low seat, and then you might well be invited to sit up higher, okay? So let's read that together from verse 7 of chapter 14. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now next, Jesus goes on to say, whenever you're, well, that's whenever you're invited to a party. Now whenever you're the host of a party, Don't just invite your friends, and certainly don't invite people with the expectation that they will pay you back and host you in return. Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. In those days, the people who couldn't work, who couldn't host a party, who could not pay you back. Hence, people who never got invited to anyone's parties. This is what he says next from verse 12. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, so let's go back to Christmas. Anyone hosting this year? Who are you inviting? Just your friends, relatives, rich neighbors? Maybe, the wider, maybe your wider circle has a rotation system. Anybody work with a rotation system where you host this year and then someone else hosts next year, whatever? That kind of has the repayment built in, doesn't it? 
It does work. It works well. But there is a danger as well that it becomes a kind of come dine with me Christmas dinner competition, doesn't it? Where whenever you've been to one house on the way back, you discuss how their stuffing wasn't as good as your stuffing the year before or whatever. Now, if we invited the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, that would take the pressure off needing things to be perfect, wouldn't it? Because they can't pay us back. So all this talk of feasting and banquets made someone at, the, at this feast think of the greatest feast of all. And he proclaims, blessed is everyone who will eat bread. That's just an expression for eat food. In the kingdom of God, the greatest feast of all. And this prompts Jesus to tell his very famous parable of the great banquet. So let's read from verse 16. <clears throat> It says, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet." Now, this, in this parable, our story that Jesus tells, he, he calls it a great banquet. Now, in the original Greek language, this word for great is megos. Now, I'm not an expert, but that it means mega, right? Exceedingly big, large, mighty. It was a massive banquet, right? This is a banquet way beyond our most impressive attempts at a Christmas party, but the surprising thing is that even though it was so great, those who were originally invited decline the invitation. They can't be bothered going, and they come up with these lame excuses. And you see, what Jesus is trying to get across is that God has gone to great lengths to prepare an eternity of infinite joy to us human beings. He made the universe. He sent his son to become a man, to die on the cross, all to pave the way for us for an, an eternity of infinite joy. And, and, and he now says, in the gospel message, he says, everything is now ready. It is now ready. You can accept the invitation. We can be absolutely sure of a place in his kingdom at this great banquet forever. But the, the, the surprising thing is that many people have no interest. You try to talk to them about God's kingdom and they will politely decline. They get enough out of life, thank you very much. They are, they are busy enough making a place for themselves in this life. Just like this man who had bought a field trying to establish a place here and now. They have no interest in the next life. Or they're focused on establishing their business, their career. I have bought five yoke of oxen. That's a bit like buying five tractors, right? <laughs> Or raising a family, I married a wife. Now, 
how, how do you think this host of this great banquet would feel after all the effort he has come to and then all of his guests can't be bothered coming? It says the master of the house became angry. Do you notice that term, the master of the house? Do you recognize that from last week? Became angry. And he declares that all those originally invited will never taste of my banquet. He had gone to great lengths to prepare a mega, a megos banquet. So it was extremely offensive that they didn't think it was good enough to to be worth the bother. You see, God... Even now, God has a a bad reputation as a bit of a killjoy, and heaven will be boring just like a big kind of choir for all eternity. But Jesus is correcting that. God knows how to have a good time. He invented pleasure. His kingdom will be a mega banquet beyond anything we have ever tasted on earth. When we are resurrected into the joys of eternal life, it will seem like we were only ever half alive before that. I'm not sure what gives you the pleasure in life. Maybe you love business, wheeling and dealing, making money, progressing in your career. Maybe you love nice things, a beautiful home, good food, holidays, entertainment. Remember the pleasure we all find in human relationships, falling in love, a good marriage, children, grandchildren. These are all good things, but none of these things can ultimately satisfy us. This is, as C.S. Lewis famously said, I have found a desire within myself that no experience in this world can satisfy. So the most probable explanation is that it was made for another world. You see, all these very real and legitimate pleasures that these people are using as excuses, they are real things, but they're not ultimate. They are mere pointers, tasters towards a bigger and better life to come. All the joy that we get from our work, our possessions, and our relationships in this world will be fulfilled to a far higher extent in the next world. Eternity will be far more glorious, far more spectacular. There will be more of everything. We can't even imagine there will be more and greater work to do. There will be deeper and more meaningful relationships. There will be more beauty and glory beyond our imagination. Jesus is assuring us that God's kingdom will fulfill all our deepest longings. You know, they will not be frustrated. They will be fully satisfied. Again, C.S. Lewis puts it very well. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, we are far too easily pleased. And in this parable, Jesus is warning us that many, many people will miss out on infinite joy Deliberately, because they cannot imagine anything greater than the tiny pleasures they enjoy just now. Maybe you've begun to sense this, even in your own life. Perhaps life is not all, it hasn't worked out as you dreamed. Perhaps you've even achieved your goals. You know, you've done well in your career. You've had your family. And you know what? You're not as fulfilled as you thought you would be. You know, sometimes we can actually feel guilty because we're not as happy as we think we should be. But in a sense, that's a good thing. All of us have to face this question of, is this it at some point? 
So all these guests decline his invitation, but the host is not forced to cancel his party. He has other plans. Because all these upper-class guests refused, he sends his servant out to the rougher end of town. Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Now, you imagine these poor people coming into this great banquet. They must have found it all quite hard to believe. Uh, you know, this invitation. Us? No, there must be some mistake. We can't come to the palace for a banquet. We can't afford it. What? It's free of charge? There must be some mistake. Are you sure? Uh, and you can imagine after they're persuaded, in they come, looking around them they, in awe. They had never seen anything like it in all their life, the decor, the food, the music, the entertainment. And, and, and still the master of the house says, there's room, there is still room for more. So he sends out his, his servant again, out to not even to the streets and lanes, to the highways and hedges this time, to get the homeless, the outcasts of society. Can you imagine these down and outs coming in to such luxurious splendor? They can't believe their luck. So Jesus is using this parable to explain that see, whenever the people come into the kingdom of God, there'll be no one coming in like those guests at that wedding and plonking themselves in the best seats. Everyone at that feast will be creeping in, overwhelmed at the glory of it all, rubbing their eyes to, to make sure it's actually true, that they're actually there, eternally grateful to the host, to the master of the house, for sending someone to tell us the gospel and invite us in. And you see, Jesus is telling this parable to the Jews, the privileged people of God, and he had been sent to them, just like the servant here is sent to invite people to this feast. And of course, most of them declined his offer. The leaders of the nation actually had him crucified. So he was warning them that God is not going to cancel eternity. <laughs> Instead, you know what he's going to do? He's going to extend his offer to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. If they refused, God would invite all the outcasts the nobodies, right down to us today in this place. God's invitation comes directly to each one of us right here and now. Jesus asks us, would you like to come to my feast? And notice it is the poor and crippled and blind and lame who accept the invitation. People, these people who missed out on many of the normal pleasures of life, you know, such as starting a business. Back in those days, these people couldn't start a business. They couldn't have a nice house. They couldn't host a feast. And it wasn't through any fault of their own. And still today, there's many people in this world who do not get a fair shot of life. Some are born with disabilities, others disadvantaged, little education, little few resources, few opportunities. And often, those are the very people who are ready to listen to God's invitation. It is the rich, the intelligent, the successful, the popular, the good-looking, who have the least time for God. They're too busy, too important, having too much fun, and Jesus says they will never taste what real fun is. So, so this is some banquet, a great banquet. Now, is there a catch? We, we have a saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? So there must be a massive cost to enjoying an all-expenses-paid 
you know, eternal party of infinite joy. But Jesus explains the feast itself is free of charge. It's all provided entirely at God's expense. He gave his only son. His son gave himself. He shed his blood. The payment has been provided by God himself. So for us to try to contribute anything is an outrageous offense to the host. Let's imagine, imagine these poor guests coming up to this amazing great banquet and trying to offer the host a few pence on their way in or, or, or taking their shoes off and trying to give their shoes to the host or something. The host would be mightily offended. The Bible is very clear that we cannot contribute to our salvation. We cannot earn our salvation by good works, by rituals, by religious observances. To insist on earning our way to heaven, it makes God very angry. It's, it's to question, it's an offense to his infinite generosity. So the great banquet is free of charge. We cannot contribute, but it is not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. There is a cost, not in adding anything, not in contributing to the feast, but in getting to it. And not to pay for our entrance, but to take the journey, there is a cost. If we are to get there, we have to walk away from everything else. We have to put that first. And the next verse, verses go on to explain the cost. So let's read from verses 26, just after this parable of the great banquet. Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he is enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Now, in this passage, hate does not mean hate as we would think. It's a Hebrew expression for importance, for priority, for giving one thing priority over another. And Christ is saying, if you're going to follow me to this feast, I must be first. That's the only way. Above your possessions, your business, your career, your family, your mother and father, your 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 children, your entire life. I have to be Lord over all these other things. Even the, the legitimate things that bring you pleasure, like business and possessions and family, I have to be first. He says you must bear your cross. Again, he is not asking us to seek to be crucified. It's an expression. Because if someone is seen carrying their cross, they're on their way to die. They're condemned. Their life is over. And if we become a Christian, we hand our life to Jesus Christ. Our life is over. We now belong to him entirely, completely. All that we are and have, we've given it away. See, Jesus is saying, if you're going to make it, there's no half measures. 
You're either all in or not in at all. Uh, this is quite the demand, isn't it? The, the, the feast is spectacular. It's worth it. But it, there is a big cost to getting there. And that's why Jesus asks us to sit down and consider the cost before we start up front. You know, we wouldn't start a building project if we, if we don't know that we're able to finish it. Otherwise, we'll be embarrassed at having laid the foundations and nothing else. We wouldn't enter into a war with another king unless we thought we could win, unless we had enough army. And he's saying it's the same with being a Christian. It's as big a decision as that, bigger. Becoming a Christian is no light thing. It is not to be entered into half-hearted. It means giving away our, our life, our temporary life now in this world in order to gain eternal life in the world to come. And in this passage, David Gooding actually, he likens Christ to like a mountain guide. You know someone who, who guides you up a very dangerous mountain like Mount Everest or something? And in this, in this passage, Christ is offering us not to lead us up Everest. He's offering to lead us to eternal life. He's offering to lead us to the greatest banquet beyond our wildest dreams. But, but the way is very dangerous. The way to get there is actually impossible without him. He is the only one who can lead us there. And his services are free of charge. He's not going to charge us anything. The, the feast is entirely free. We cannot contribute a thing towards us. But he says, if you're going to follow me, you have to hand your whole self over to me. To guarantee your safe arrival, I must have complete obedience from this point on, before we even start out on this journey. It's going to be quite the adventure, but you have to, you have to entrust yourself to me completely. And Christ is saying, I will lead you to glory. I'm not going to charge you anything, but in order to get there, you must entrust your entire life to me and do exactly as I say at all times. I must come first above family, friends, or this will not work. He couldn't be clearer, could he? He says, we either renounce all that we have, right? That is radical, everything, including our very life, or we cannot genuinely call ourselves his disciples. Now, this does not mean, again, that all Christians have to give away all their possessions, but it does mean that he has to have the ultimate say over everything in our life. If he asks us to do anything, then we must do it. So the stakes could not be higher. The prize is infinite joy. The cost is life itself. To enjoy the pleasures of eternal life, we must give Christ control over all the pleasures of our life now. We must entrust ourselves entirely to him. This is not an easy decision. The cost is massive. Even today, in many countries, people lose their life for making this decision. But if this is true, if there really is a great banquet of infinite joy, then this is a no-brainer, right? This is the, the, the most sensible decision you can make, even if it costs you your life. So, Christ is saying, everybody sit down and decide, is this invitation real? Is there a feast, of a banquet of infinite joy beyond this life? Is this man telling us this, the Son of God, who has come from glory in order to lead us back to glory? If he is, then I would be a fool not to give my life to him, whatever the cost.
But just a minute now, there's many of us here who are his disciples already, aren't we? Or Christians. There's many here who would claim to be Christians. So are we actually obeying this? Are we putting him first? Are we obeying him entirely and absolutely as he demands here? Well, this is all quite general so far, so let's get specific. Let's go back to what Jesus said earlier. When you are invited anywhere, go and sit in the lowest place. That's straightforward enough, isn't it? We are so naturally self-centered, we try to get the best seats, the places of honor. When we're younger, we fight with our brothers and sisters for the front seat in the car. We arrive early at things for the prime positions. We walk into a living room and we immediately look around for the most comfortable seat. Jesus tells us, take the worst seat. Climb into the back seat. This is the direct opposite of our competitive natures where we crave recognition and honor. That's number one. The other thing he said earlier was, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So this is a good time to rethink our Christmas plans, isn't it? Do we ever invite people who cannot repay us? those less fortunate than ourselves, those with little resources of their own. You know, just on Thursday past, I met uh, an African lady who had lived in Belfast for a year. I asked her if she found the local people friendly, and she said they keep themselves to themselves. Last year, she spent Christmas alone. And she was afraid to do it again this year. And her sister said, go to church. You'll meet some friendly people. That's a challenge for all of us in church, isn't it? It's just an example. Many of us should not attempt to host or cook anything for anybody. That would not be kindness, okay? The big point is that Christ calls all of us to use everything we have, whatever our resources, whatever our particular skills and circumstances, for him and for others, even on Christmas Day. To be open to Christ, bringing someone along for us to include them. We don't think that way naturally. We we assume the holidays are ours. We have worked so hard. You know, we need some time off to ourselves to relax. And Christ says, to yourselves? I, I thought you had counted the cost before we started this journey. I thought you'd given away everything, including your holidays. You have no life left. It's mine, remember? Now, he's not a slave driver. He actually makes life better. (laughs) You know, Christ reminds us we have given up everything. That was the condition before we even began the journey. We are meant to consider that before we start out. You know, my wife is much better than this than I am. (laughs) And so is my brother-in-law. And last year, between the two of them, we had three random guests on Christmas Day. There was a Protestant, a Catholic, and a Muslim. That sounds like the start of a bad joke, doesn't it? I thought it was going to end up like a bad joke, to be honest, like a disaster. And we did have to divert the conversation once or twice, but it was a wonderful day. And the highlight, far more interesting than most of my Christmas days, 
And the highlight was my father-in-law sharing the Christmas story with that Muslim lady. See, this all comes down to basic trust in our guide, the one who is guiding us to glory. Christ isn't out to make our life worse. It, it will be harder, yes. I admit it'll be harder, but richer and better. He is our guide to glory. He is seeking to use our everyday experiences, our work life and our holidays, everything, our homes, our resources, he, going to parties, hosting parties. He is seeking to use every little event of our life to prepare us for that feast to come. If we are willing to relinquish control and to trust him and to say, show me what you would have me do with my home, with my time off, then he will work in us for our eternal good. Christ says to each one of us, I will be your guide through life. It will be more of an adventure, right? It will be less comfortable, but it will be far more beneficial. He says, obey what I say. And when I return in glory, you will receive an eternal reward. Did you notice that? I'll compensate you for any discomfort, any sacrifice, any risk you took in order to obey me, to obey my commands. Even these commands to take the lowest seats and to spend our money on the less fortunate who cannot repay us. He says, you will not be left short. You will be repaid when I come back to raise you from the dead and give you your reward. So I need to hear this more than you do. I know this church is very hospitable, especially towards international students, people who cannot pay you back. Christ says, do so more and more. Do more of this. Your reward will be even greater in the resurrection. And I think in our heart of hearts, we all know this is true. That radical obedience to Christ is the best way to live, even now. And certainly it will be. We'll have no regrets whenever he returns. Isn't this amazing? That the banquet is free. It's completely free of charge. There's nothing we have to pay. But if we follow him as we should, he will actually reward us. He will pay us back for every sacrifice whenever he gets back. He says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. But do we actually believe this? Do we actually live like that in everyday life? Do we take his words as seriously, as literally as he should? These are just two small examples, right? Luke's gospel is full of many examples where he tells us many things. In this case, he tells us to take the lowest place. And he tells us to include into our lives those who cannot repay us. He has given many more commands, some of which will apply more directly to your circumstances, perhaps. But maybe if we all sought to obey him more literally than we do, especially if we have a sense of, is this it in life? It will make life more of an adventure now, and it will certainly mean that we are more prepared and more rewarded in the life to come. So let us remember the decision we made when we started out to follow Christ. Let us become true disciples and relinquish more and more control over our short, temporary lives. Relinquish it to our great heavenly guide, giving up honor here and reward here for greater honor and greater reward whenever he returns. Let us pray.
Lord Jesus, we do thank you for coming from heaven to earth, from the great glory to this a sinful world in order to invite us back to glory, <laughs> to invite us to share in your joy, in the infinite joy that God has had within himself for all eternity. He wants us to be a part of it. And Lord, what lengths you have gone to in order to prepare us for that, to prepare a place for us. Lord, you have spent, you have created the universe. You have spent centuries preparing this world for the coming of your son. You have sent your son. He has died on the cross. He has rose again. He has ascended to heaven. And he's coming again to bring us to himself so that we might share in that great banquet for all eternity. Lord, there will be greater joys there than we have ever experienced here. Help us to sense that invitation even as it comes to us this very day. We pray for any who haven't yet made the decision to follow him. We pray that they would sense the call of God in their life, the invitation to come and follow Christ, that they would count the cost. Even though the cost is high, we have to give up life here in order to follow him to eternal life there. We pray that they would see that this is, this is the only sensible decision to make because of the great rewards, the great rewards of being with our Savior in his joy forever. We pray for us who have made that decision. Maybe many years ago, Lord, did we really sit down and count the cost before we started? How often we have taken our life back. How often we live for ourselves. We hold control over what we do, over all that we own, and we spend much of it on ourselves. We pray, Lord, that we would see what the Lord Jesus is calling us to, even in this very passage even in these simple ways, to not seek our own honor or glory, but to take the lower places, to humble ourselves, to serve others, even to serve the, those that cannot repay us. For then we will be repaid whenever he returns. We pray, Lord, that these things would not be just nice ideas, but that we would actually have the courage to trust our Savior and implement them in reality, to, to take the risks, to let our Lord Jesus have more and more control over all that we are and all that we own. And we ask it for his glory.